Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, Rise. Such a beautiful picture going down underneath the water, picturing Christ's death and burial, and coming up out of the water, picturing Christ's resurrection. And so the question that you need to answer inside of your heart is this. Have you been baptized since? Can you say the word since? Go ahead. Have you been baptized since you chose to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord? The reason that question is so important is because the New Testament teaches that 100% of the time, baptism follows belief. Did you get that? Baptism follows belief. It never comes before belief. Infants, ladies and gentlemen, cannot believe. They're not able to believe. And so what the, what the Word of God teaches is that once you've received Christ as your Savior, then you follow him, because it's your choice, in believers' baptism, and it pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Our next baptism is this Saturday, and so if you have not been baptized since you came to Christ as your Savior, here's your opportunity to obey the Lord's command. And so our baptisms are not a ritual. They're not dry or boring. They're a party. They're a celebration. We have them right here on our courtyard, and uh, we have them uh, probably every other month or so. And so we want to encourage you to sign up with your Get Connected card. Again, that's your tool to communicate a lot of this stuff with us. But sign up on your Get Connected card. Check the baptism box. Put it in one of those wooden tide boxes on your way out, and we'll make sure we're ready for our baptism celebration this Saturday, 11 a.m., on our courtyard. All right. Well, if you found Matthew 28 and it's ready, just say amen so I know you're ready to pray. Now, how many of you guys believe Jesus is alive right now? Okay. So what does that mean? That means this is not a dead religious ritual. That means he's alive and he's listening. And so we're going to pray. I'll pray out loud. You talk to him from within your heart, and we'll ask him to send his spirit and do what only he can do in our hearts and in the hearts of our kids next door. And so, Jesus, we do come to you having full confidence that you're alive and well and sitting at the right hand of the Father. We're so grateful that you're interceding for us, and we're so grateful that you love us so much. Father, we're grateful that you sent your son into the world on a rescue mission to seek and save those who are lost. And if all of us were honest, we'd have to admit that we're lost without you. We're sinners that are in desperate need of a savior. And so thank you, Jesus, for not leaving us in our sins, but coming and rescuing us and rising from the dead. And so we proclaim you on this day and all days as our hero and our savior. And we look forward one day to seeing you face to face when our sight our faith will become sight. And so until that day, Lord, um, we, just, we just ask that you'll empower us by your spirit to live for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Well, after Jesus died on the cross, there was this man named Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea was a little town in between Jerusalem and Joppa on the coast of the Mediterranean. So it was a guy named Joseph of Arimathea who was a member of what's known as the Sanhedrin, and Joseph went to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, and he requested for the body of Jesus to be entrusted to him. 
And so Pontius Pilate gave um, the okay, and so Joseph of Arimathea and his friend Nicodemus, both of them members of the Sanhedrin, took down the body of Jesus from the cross. If you're new to the Bible, the Sanhedrin was the supreme court of Israel, the, the ruling body, the government, so to speak, of the Jews in the first century. It was made up of 70 men plus the high priest. And these guys were the ones who voted to condemn Jesus to death, to turn him over to the Romans in order to be crucified. Luke tells us in his gospel that Joseph of Arimathea did not consent to the vote of the Sanhedrin to condemn Jesus. Good news is that Jesus loves sinners and saints, religious people and irreligious people. And here you have this religious guy whose colleagues hated Jesus, and Joseph of Arimathea became a believer in Christ. He and Nicodemus took down the body of Jesus from the cross, and they took that body to a nearby tomb, which happened to be Joseph's own personal tomb. John tells us it was in a garden somewhere. So they took the dead body of Jesus, and they put it inside of the tomb. They laid it down, and they prepared it for burial. The way they did that was they would take these spices, myrrh, alloy, etc., and they would um, put the spices on the body, under the body, and then they would wrap the body up with strips of linen, again, why? To prepare that body for burial. Now, Joseph's tomb would have looked something like this. A tomb from the first century would have looked something like this. It was literally hewn out of pure limestone, and what they did is that they dug a trench on a downward incline in front of the entrance of the tomb, and they had, they chipped away, and they made these big round stones, scholars believe about two tons. And so Joseph Nicodemus would have put Jesus' body in that tomb, prepared it for burial, and then they rolled that stone down into the trench it would have been easy for them because it's on a downward incline. They pushed the stone down into the trench, closing the tomb. You say, why did they use stones? Because there was wild animals everywhere, and they didn't want the wild animals to desecrate the bodies. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read a few verses uh, before we get to chapter 28. And so back up to Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. Okay, so right now, if you're looking at Matthew 27, 62, just say amen. Okay, so here we go. The next day, that is after the day of preparation. Okay, what was the day of preparation for the Jews? It was a day that they prepared for something. Does anybody know what they prepared for? The Sabbath. What day did the Sabbath occur on? Saturday. So the day after preparation, preparation was on Friday, okay, so right now in your Bibles, this is Saturday. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, and they said, sir, we remember how that imposter, you see how they felt about Jesus? That imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise, therefore, Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last 
fraud will be worse than the first. So these guys who are bitter against Jesus, they, they said that if the disciples were to steal the body of Jesus away and, and say that he's risen, that fraud would be worse than the first fraud. What was the first fraud? The ministry of Jesus. You know, that big fraud of how he gave sight to blind people and hearing to deaf people and raised up crippled people and told us to love our neighbors as ourselves. That fraud perpetuated by that imposter. These guys had some really hard hearts, didn't they? And so they're requesting to make the tomb secure. And Pilate says in verse 65, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure. How? By sealing the stone and setting a guard. And so the same Pharisees who hated Jesus during his life hated him in his death. And they went to Pilate and they asked that Pilate would make the tomb secure. And so Pilate gave that order. Now, what would a sealed tomb look like? Well, in that day, what the Roman soldiers did is that they stretched a rope across the front of the stone, and then they would attach, attach the rope somehow to the side of the hill using either clay or wax, and then they would put the um, official imperial seal of the Roman Empire on that clay. In other words, don't mess with this tomb. In other words, if you move the stone and break the seal, then guess what? You are executed on the spot. And so the tomb is sealed, the guards are watching over it, and you guys need to know that these guards, these trained to kill professional Roman soldiers, they took this task especially very seriously, and here's why. Because Pilate himself, the governor of Judea, is the one that ordered that they should watch Jesus' tomb. And so, man, you better believe that they were on their tippy toes. They were wide-eyed, they were awake, and they were vigilant because they knew their very lives depended on fulfilling this task. And now we get to chapter 28. It says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day, Sunday, the first day of the week. And by the way, isn't it cool that 2,000 years later, here we are on the first day celebrating the resurrection. Isn't that awesome? That's so cool. And so after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And so the two Marys got up early on Sunday morning and they went to the tomb and Luke tells us that they brought more spices. No doubt they wanted to continue the job um, that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had started. They wanted to further prepare the body of Jesus for burial. And it says now in verse two, Matthew now tells us uh, what happened before the women arrived. So look at verse two. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and he came and he rolled back the stone and he sat on it. And some people read that and say, see what I mean? Fairy tale. See what I mean? The Bible is just filled with these outlandish stories that just are not true. Well, this is exactly what happened. I can't believe it. Well, if you believe the first verse of the Bible, any miracle for the next 66 books should not be a problem. 
The first verse of the Bible is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, we did not come from nothing. Nothing cannot create something. Something has to create something. There's a first cause. There is an uncaused cause. He's eternal, he is infinite. He's the first mover. And so if you can believe the first verse of the Bible, man, this should be easy to believe. And so verse three, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards, I love this, these trained professional big bad guards, trembled and became like dead men. And so before the women arrived, this angel descends from heaven, rolls back the stone, and he sits on it. Question, did the angel roll back the stone to let Jesus out, yes or no? No. No. It's not like Jesus came to life inside the tomb and he's beaten on the backside of the stone. Let me out, right? That's not what happened. No, what happened, John chapter 20 tells us that Jesus, in his glorified, resurrected body, was able to materialize and dematerialize at will. He was able to soar up into heaven during the ascension. He was able to walk through walls. He could appear and disappear. And and by the way, that's his resurrected, glorified body. The good news is, if you know Jesus, because Jesus has risen, one day you're gonna get one of those bodies. And it's gonna be absolutely awesome. Not these old broken down bodies that we're constantly trying to work out and eat right and keep them going. We're gonna get a brand new body that will never die. And so the angel did not roll back the stone to let Jesus out. He rolled back the stone so that anybody and everybody could look in and see the evidence for themselves that the tomb was absolutely empty. I love the fact that the soldiers saw the angel and they trembled, okay? So imagine these soldiers, again, big, burly, strong, and and they see the lightning flashing angel coming down, and they begin to shake uncontrollably, they just fall down. Further proof that real angels are not like the ones on the pictures at home, as I've said before, not these little plump beings that float on clouds and strum harps, You know, your pictures are wrong, my pictures are wrong. We took our pictures down, by the way, a month ago uh, because it's just not right. These little plump things, little Pillsbury doughboys are not real angels. Real angels are massive and big and awesome. And if you and I ever saw one, we'd probably shake and fall down dead too, or like we were dead. And so, let's see what the angel says to the women, verse five. But the angel said, Do not be afraid. I think, I've never studied this, but I think every time there's an angelic encounter, the first thing out of the mouth of the angel is do not be afraid because they're so awesome. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And then verse six, ladies and gentlemen, is why you're here today. I hope this is why you're here, right? Verse six, I hope The reason that you're here today is not to fulfill some kind of religious ritual that you think you have to fulfill. I hope you're not here today because, you know, this is uh, the two times I come to church, Christmas and Easter. I hope that's the furthest thing from your mind. I hope that the reason that you're here is because of verse six. And so if you have the ESV version, I want you to read verse six out loud like you mean it, on the count of three. Are you ready? 
And again, if you have NIV or NASB, don't read because it'll sound like everybody's speaking in tongues. Just ESV, verse six, on the count of three, one, two, three, go. He is not here. That's why 2,000 years later, we're here. On Sunday, the first day of the week, because the historical fact of the resurrection actually happened. And the angel said, come, see the place where he lay. Verse seven, then go quickly, the angel tells these women. By the way, they were women. In the first century, the word, a testimony of a woman was so below. I mean, you think there's male chauvinist pigs now? Try living, ladies, in the first century. Your testimony was way down here somewhere, and men, their testimony is way up here. Further proof that if you're trying to float a lie, you'd never pick women to float your lie. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all say the women saw him first, risen from the dead. You see that? There's little things in the Bible that are very intriguing. He says, go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you, verse eight. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them. Can you imagine that? And he said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet. And what did they do for Jesus at the end of verse nine? They Worshiped him. These were Jewish women. All right, what's the first two commandments out of the Big Ten that Moses carried down from Mount Sinai? I am the Lord your God, which delivered you from Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment one. <laughs> commandment number two, you shall not make any graven images or idols and bow down and worship them. These women are worshiping Jesus, what does that tell you and me? That tells us that Jesus, the true Jesus of the Bible, is not an exalted angel, he's not a prophet, he is the eternal God. That's the truth of the Bible. And so if you're gonna put your faith in Jesus, make sure you have the right Jesus, because there's lots of Jesuses out there. Islam says he's just a prophet and he never died on a cross. The Jehovah Witnesses say he was just an exalted angel. The Mormons believe he was the brother of Lucifer. They all think he was a created being. They got the wrong Jesus. They got a Jesus who cannot save you. The real Jesus always received worship because the real Jesus is God. Amen? Amen. Man, I love that truth. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And so the angel said, he's not here. Hey, ladies, come on in and see the place where he used to lay, all right? And so that tomb, have you ever thought through this? Does anybody think there was skeptics in the first century? More skeptics than believers, believe me. And so Joseph of Arimathea, a follower of Jesus, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had his tomb in the garden area near Golgotha, all you had to do if you lived in Jerusalem during the first century is say, Joe, can I look into your tomb? Sure, and you could look in and you could see the evidence for yourself. That's why the religious leaders had to come up with a big fat lie 
in order to try to explain away the resurrection. And that's found in verses 11 through 15. And by the way, do you see what we're doing here this morning on Easter? We're, we're teaching verse by verse in the Bible. That's important because this is God's word. And this word that I'm teaching you is a billion with a B times more important than any words that ever come from me. Okay? And so look at verse 11 now. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, that's Jerusalem, and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. Okay, so these soldiers run into the, uh, to, to, to the Sanhedrin, they're out of breath. Man, we saw an angel. Man, the tomb's empty. Verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they, that's the Sanhedrin, gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And the soldiers no doubt said, nuh-uh. If Pilate finds out, we're dead. But the Sanhedrin had that covered. Look at verse 14. And if this, the Sanhedrin said to the soldiers, comes to the governor's ears, Pilate hears about it. We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. They kind of had Pilate wrapped around their finger because they knew if Pilate ever got out of line, all they had to do was make a phone call, so to speak, to Caesar in Rome and Pilate would be in trouble. And so verse 15, so they took the money, the soldiers took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story, you wanna know what's really fabricated, this is what's fabricated, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day day. So sad, the condition of the human heart. So, so sad how depraved mankind really is. The hearts of these religious leaders were so hardened, all the evidence in the world did not matter to them. And so what did they do? They paid the soldiers off to tell a lie. So if you're here this afternoon, and your heart has any bit of softness to it, if you're here today and your mind, you believe, is reasonable enough to weigh the evidence, what I wanna do the rest of this message is I wanna share with you some evidence. This is not an exhaustive list. We'd be here all day today and tomorrow. I wanna share with you some evidence that your faith is not a fairy tale, but that The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact, okay? You ready for this? Evidence number one, if you're taking notes, the disciples did did not have enough courage to steal the body. What did the Jews say? And when I say Jews, I don't mean all Jews at all history. Listen, the first followers of Jesus were Jews. This was the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day. What did they say? They paid the soldiers off and said, tell them, Anybody you see that asks that the disciples stole the body under the cover at night. Well, here's how you refute that. The disciples didn't have enough courage to steal the body. Go back to Thursday night of Holy Week. Sunday's Palm Sunday. Thursday night, the Lord's Supper, Passover. And then where did they go after Passover? Does anybody remember to the slopes of the Mount of Olives to a garden? Anybody remember the name of the garden? the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's Jesus. He's on his face, sweating great drops of blood, and all of a sudden, here comes Judas with a band of soldiers, torches in hand, 
ready to betray Jesus with a kiss. And what happened to the disciples that night? What did they all do? They what? Ran. Why did they run away? Because they were scared to death that if they were apprehended by the Roman Empire, they would be executed for being followers of Jesus Christ. And so it does not make any sense whatsoever that these disciples who were so scared in the Garden of Gethsemane just three days later mustered up all this courage, you know, to go to the tomb, sneak past the soldiers, push this big two-ton rock out of the way, grab the body of Jesus and steal it. It doesn't make any sense. Does that make sense to you guys? Do you see that? Okay, so imagine this. I want you to imagine the 11 disciples, and there they are, early Sunday morning, and I want you to imagine that the, the, the Roman soldiers are actually sleeping. I don't believe they were, because they knew if they were caught sleeping, they're dead. But let's just play along. There they are, they're sleeping. Here comes Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Matthew, the rest of them. And they're like, all right guys, shh. All right, let's go. And they're jumping over these sleeping bodies that are snoring. They get to the big rock, this two-ton stone. All right, no noise, okay? One, two. And Peter goes, shut up, Peter, right? And they're pushing the thing out of the groove. And by the way, it's easy to push it down in the groove, very hard to push it out of the groove on an upward incline. And then you grab the shoulders, I'll grab the feet. Come on, let's go. Do you really believe that? Are we really expected to believe that the disciples who didn't have enough courage to stand up for a living Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of a sudden, three days later, had enough courage to stand up for a dead Jesus on Sunday morning? Give me a break. Ladies and gentlemen, can we be thinking Christians this morning? Do you understand that your faith, if you have faith today, is not a fairy tale? It is based on a historical fact. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's alive. He's absolutely alive right now. And so the question is, are you living like he's alive? Are you living your life for your hero, Jesus Christ, or are you just doing your own thing, going your own way, breathing God's air that he gave you, and one day are you, 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 you're gonna die after living for yourself? If Christ really rose from the dead, you and I, need to come to grips with that, and we need to follow him. He's alive. Evidence number two, if you're taking notes. My favorite. Over 500 eyewitnesses saw Jesus alive after his death. Over 500. And so scholars debate whether Jesus died in AD 32, AD 33. Great conservative guys are on both ends because we don't know, it doesn't give the exact date in the Bible. So either 32, 33, right around there. Now, just 22 or three years later, in AD 55, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. Just, everybody look at me please, 22 short years. That's not enough time for a legend to develop. See what I mean? People say Christianity's a legend. Listen, it takes centuries to develop a legend filled with lies. 
just 22, 23 years, A.D. 55, the Apostle Paul writes this, first Christian creed, 1 Corinthians 15. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. What does that mean? In accordance with the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, in accordance to Isaiah 53, 700 years before Christ. Psalm 22, 1,000 years before Christ. Daniel 9, 600 years before Christ. I go on and on and on. He died for our sins according to, that's the Hebrew Bible, we call it the Old Testament. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Psalm 1610, Old Testament, 1,000 years before Christ. Here's the prophecy. You will not allow your Holy One, the Messiah, to see corruption. The Old Testament prophesies the resurrection of the Messiah. And here's further evidence that he, what's the word? Appeared. Please, everybody say appeared. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Okay, so if you're a skeptic in the first century, go knock on the door of over 250 guys that are still alive, and they'll tell you we saw him alive after he had died. Though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, that's his little half-brother, who, by the way, thought he was crazy during his ministry, he thought James, the Gospels record that James and his brothers, that's Jesus' little half-brothers, thought he was a lunatic. Look, he's a believer now. I would love to see that happen when Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appears to his little brother James. I would love to see him put James in a headlock and give him a noogie and say, you still think I'm crazy, brother? He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, that's Paul. For I am the least of all the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so Paul said, the risen Christ appeared to me. If you know anything about the New Testament, you know that Paul is his Greek name, but what's his Hebrew name? Those of you who know, go ahead and tell me. Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus hated Jesus. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. He believed Jesus was a false Messiah. And so what did Saul of Tarsus do? He viciously persecuted the church, the believers in Jesus. Until one day, recorded in Acts chapter nine, Saul of Tarsus is on his high horse or camel or donkey. He's heading up to Damascus, Syria. And all of a sudden, he's knocked down off of that camel or horse or donkey. And he's lying on the dirt floor and he's looking up and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, it's like, surprise, I'm alive. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And after that divine encounter with the risen Christ, here's what you need to know, that one of the greatest persecutors of the church became one of the 
greatest missionaries the church has ever seen. From persecutor to missionary. How do you explain that transformation? He saw the risen Christ. And so did over 500 people. Look again at the top of your screen. Jesus, the risen Christ, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. My wife and I saw a great movie this past week called The Case for Christ. I was really um, surprised and uh, happy at how well they made this movie, how great the acting was. It wasn't a dry documentary, it was a, a real story. It's the testimony of Lee Strobel and how he, an atheist, came to faith in Jesus Christ. It's still in the theaters all over. I encourage you to take your family. But the book that Lee Strobel wrote, in that book, he talks about what kind of impact would over 500 eyewitnesses have in a court of law. So check out what Lee Strobel said. If you were to call each one of the witnesses to a court of law to be cross-examined for just 15 minutes each, and you went around the clock without a break, it would take you from breakfast on Monday until dinner on Friday to hear them all. After listening to 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, who could possibly walk away unconvinced? 129 straight hours from Monday morning to Friday night, round the clock, one after another, I saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. I saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. I saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no rational jury on the planet that would come to any other conclusion than this. Pop, pop, we have a verdict. Jesus Christ is guilty. He's guilty from rising He's guilty of rising from the dead. That's the truth. The question is, are you living for the one who rose from the dead? And so, what's the evidence? The evidence, number three, if you're taking notes, is before the apostles were martyred, they refused to deny the resurrection. Have you ever thought about this one? And so these 11 men, plus later on Paul, Saul who became Paul. They all lived their entire lives for Jesus and they all proclaimed publicly the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. What motivation did they have to lie? Do you really think these 12 guys got together in some smoke-filled room and said, okay, here's what we're gonna do, guys. Make sure we're all saying the same thing. Make sure that none of us contradicts one another because if we're really gonna make this lie float, if, and and, and here, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna start a new religion and we're gonna get rich. We're gonna be so rich, we're gonna build condominiums all around the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. It's gonna be great, but you can't contradict. You gotta keep this lie floating. Do you really think that's what happened? No, when they got together in the upper room, 120 of them, they were praying and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and filled them to overflowing and they began to speak in other languages and they began to proclaim the resurrection of Christ and they got in big trouble for it. That's what happened. And so they got in serious trouble and they were willing to die without recanting the resurrection. 
This book that we give out, More Than a Carpenter, we've been giving it out, I don't know, eight, 10 years to all of our first time guests, 20, 30 books, sometimes every week. Okay, so in this book, Josh McDowell says this about the apostles. I can trust the apostles' testimonies because 11 of those men died martyrs' deaths because they stood solid for two truths, Christ's deity and his resurrection. Peter was crucified. Andrew, crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, killed by the sword. John, the son of Zebedee, he's the only one who died a natural death. He's the one that wrote Revelation that we're studying every Sunday. Philip was crucified. Bartholomew, crucified. Thomas, killed by a spear. Matthew, killed by the sword. James, the son of Alphaeus, crucified. Thaddeus was killed by arrows. Simon the Zealot was crucified. All these guys had to say was, we made it up. We really did steal the body. Please don't kill us. And they would have been spared. But all of them died brutal deaths, except for John. With this testimony on their lips, we saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. Further evidence. Here's what people think. They think it's irrational to believe that Jesus got up and walked out of a grave. That's irrational. I believe that with all the evidence that's presented, it's irrational to believe he stayed in the grave. It's a historical fact. Now, some people who think they're clever will say this. Come on, pastor. You know as well as I do that religious extremists are willing to die for their faith. They do it all the time. Radical Islamic jihadists blow themselves up. They fly planes into buildings. So what do you say about that? Well, I agree that religious extremists die all the time for their faith but there's a difference between religious extremists and the apostles. Here it is. You ought to memorize this one. Religious extremists may die for what they believe is true, but nobody dies for a known lie. Religious extremists may say, if I can hijack this plane and fly it into the Twin Towers, Instantly, 72 virgins will be waiting for me on the other side in paradise. They actually, you say they're deluded. I know, but they actually believe that. But listen, nobody dies for a known lie. So if the disciples really made up the lie that Jesus rose from the dead when they were taken to their place of execution, they would have recanted like that. Peter would have said, I made it up, but what did he say according to some historians? He saw the crucifixion, he saw the hammer, he saw the nails, and he said, I do not wanna be crucified like my master, so crucify me upside down. Why would he ever say that? Because he actually saw Jesus alive from the dead. Evidence one, the disciples didn't have enough courage to steal the body. Evidence two, over five, 100 eyewitnesses saw Jesus after he died, alive and well. Evidence three, before the apostles were martyred, they refused to deny the resurrection. 
I wish I had time to go on and on and on. I don't, but let me just mention this, the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. Again, later on this week, read Isaiah 53 and make sure you understand it was written 700 years before Christ and ask yourself, who is this talking about? As it talks about the suffering servants, suffering and death and resurrection. It's talking about Jesus 700 years before Jesus walked the planet. Psalm 1610, as I said, another prophecy about the resurrection. The, the, the fact of the evidence is that Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies from the Hebrew scriptures. Nobody else did that. Another evidence is the manuscript evidence. Did you know that there's such an overwhelming number of early copies of the New Testament that the New Testament is the most authenticated literary document from the ancient world? That's your New Testament, it's reliable. And so Jesus Christ, historical fact, rose from the dead. And here's the bottom line, if you're willing to receive it. The bottom line is this, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, trusts in him, won't perish, but have everlasting life. And so what did God do? The Father sent his Son, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He wasn't created. He's not an exalted angel. He's not a prophet. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, left heaven and entered time and space and he came to our fallen world on a rescue mission to seek and to save those who are lost. And guess what? That's you and me. You say, I'm not lost. Yes, you are. You say, no, I'm not. I say, yes, you are. You know how I know you're lost? If you haven't come to Christ, you know how I know you're lost? Because the Bible says that all, please everybody say all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the penalty of sin is what, church family? Death. Death. Truth is, God's a holy God. He doesn't wink at sin and say, it's okay. He's a holy God, and his eternal decree is that if you and I have sinned, we deserve death. Physical death, they bury us six feet under. Spiritual death, our soul, which is immortal, will go and live in one of two places forever and ever, heaven or hell. The wages of sin is death. But the good news of Romans 6.23 is this. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God so loved the world, so what did Jesus do? He came, he entered time and space, he was born of the Virgin Mary, he lived an absolutely perfect life. He never sinned one time. And then he went to a Roman cross and he hung naked. And the Bible says that he took your sin and my sin into his body on the tree. And he died. Why did he die? Because the wages of sin is? Did he die for his sins? Whose sins did he die for? He absorbed the wrath of God that you and I should receive in hell. He did that, why? Because he loves you. 
and you cannot do anything to ever work your way to God. There's no good works you can ever do to earn God's favor. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to his cross I cling. Three days later, he got up, he walked victoriously out of the grave. He's alive, it's a historical fact, proven, authenticated. Christianity's not a fairy tale. And now he's calling you. And if you'll receive him as your savior, this is his promise to you from John 6, 40. Jesus said, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. The truth is that because Jesus got up and walked out of that tomb, you and I, if we believe in him, if we trusted him, will one day rise as well. But maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Mike, you know, quite frankly, I don't see any evidence for God in my life. I don't feel his love, I don't see him anywhere, therefore I have a really hard time believing that God exists and that God loves me or cares for me. Can I just assure you that God exists and he loves you so much, it would blow you away if you knew that you have a father who loves you. God's love is like Niagara Falls. Just like the waters of mighty Niagara continue to flow and flow and flow down, so God's love continues in this age of grace, and it's not always gonna be this way, because there's a time called the tribulation that we've been studying on Sunday mornings that's coming, when the age of grace will be over. But right now in this age of grace, God's love is flowing and flowing and flowing down. And I want you to imagine at the bottom of those falls, there's a cup that's upside down. And the water continues to hit and flow over and hit and flow over and hit and flow over. And that cup remains empty. And the truth of the matter is that God's love continues to flow down on mankind, flow down on mankind. But mankind remains empty. Who's at fault? God? He keeps loving us. The problem is not with God. It's with man. We need to just turn the cup over. It's called faith. Somebody says, show me and I'll believe. God says, believe and I'll show you. I will fill you. You're going your own way. You're doing your own thing. You're empty. You're lost. You're in your sins. You're living for yourself. I'm here, God says, I exist. Turn your cup over. Believe in my son and I will fill you with so much love and joy. Your life will be rocked, changed forever. Question is, are you willing to turn your cup over? Because God's a gentleman, he doesn't force himself on anybody. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.